If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. We'll read from verse 1 to 12 this morning as we refresh our, our minds a bit, refresh our memories about where we are and what we're speaking about. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. And it was given me a reed like a, uh, unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out, and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks which stand before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must be in this manner, must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves." And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered in, into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your precious word. We thank you that you've preserved it perfectly for us, that we may look into it with confidence, knowing that your heart has been revealed here, and our future and the future of this world has been revealed. We thank you, Lord, that we find the message of salvation in your word, and we thank you. For this opportunity to be able to look into it now, we ask that your spirit would be our guide, our teacher, that our hearts would be open to your truth and that we would be prepared to live it each and every day of our lives. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, we have two witnesses or two prophets walking around Jerusalem. During the time that we call the tribulation period, the last seven years on this earth before Jesus returns to claim his throne in Jerusalem. And these last seven years are a terrible time. The first, the first three and a half years and, and the last seven years are split into generally two halves. The first three and a half years where the, where the Antichrist, where the, where the beast... Um, ascends to the throne he's able to conquer most of the world in terms of diplomacy and he becomes the ruler of this world or most of it but in the second half is a time we call Jacob's trouble when, when he sets himself up in the temple 
of God, claims himself to be God and begins to persecute the believers. This is where we find ourselves at the stage. And God sends these two individuals, which very aptly named the two witnesses because they, they, they're as witnesses against this world, against uh, the Antichrist, against the, the, the worldly powers that be, and they witness for God. They are witnesses that Christ is the true Messiah and the Saviour and the Lord of this earth. And they are primarily a witness to the Jews. We looked at that last time. And we looked at who they may be and there were a number of different theories that, that were around uh, and probably the most popular one was that, that they were Elijah and Moses or two individuals that came in the power of Elijah and Moses. As we read uh, verse 5, as we read in verse 5 today, we've got to keep in mind what actually happened here when the angel was when the angel told John to measure the temple he said to leave out the outer court and to leave out the city because they would be trampled down by the gentiles now we're gentiles but the gentiles in this sense are the are the evil generation that exists then that will be under the influence of of satan more or less they'll be cast under his spell and they will trample Jerusalem because Satan wants God's capital on this world to be his capital. And they will trample down the city in a sense. And it compares the city to Sodom and Egypt. And we've looked at this already as well. That the sin that they will commit in that city in defiance of God will be similar to the sins of Sodom. In other words, the sin will be so great and it will be compared to the bondage that the, that the Jews had in Egypt. The, these two witnesses are going to be truly uh, working in a what's called a hostile environment. And because they're, they're in a hostile environment and basically completely outnumbered, God gives them special abilities to be able to carry out their mission because it says that they will witness for 1,260 days. Well, two individuals with armies against them need to have special abilities to be able to do that, to carry it through to the end. And it says... Let's look at their mission in verse 3. It says, And I will give power unto, unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score, day, score days clothed in sackcloth. Okay, they're not clothed in armour. They haven't got any machine guns. How are they going to defend themselves? How do these guys defend themselves? from the attacks of Satan or the attacks of the beast, how were they able to preach for 1,260 days? Well, it says in verse 5, If any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. 
That's an interesting phrase. If any man will hurt them. If any man wants to hurt these two, um, they're going to be at the receiving end of a barbecue. Why would anyone want to hurt them? Well, back to the, the original scenario we have here. It's because the entire city has been taken over by the beast, by the Antichrist. God's name is being blasphemed and the beast has declared himself to be God. He begins persecution of the saints. So the saints have scattered. The Jews are being persecuted during this time. And he sets himself also against these two witnesses which become a thorn in his side. And he seeks to kill them, but he can't. He can't get rid of them. They have an, an interesting ability to be able to devour their enemies with fire that proceeds from their mouth. Now, that's a nifty thing to be able to do, isn't it? When you're being attacked. I'm reminded of um, in South Africa. In South Africa, this, uh, this car was developed because there was so much there were so many uh, carjackings taking place. And that's where you're literally just sitting in your car. You may be stopped at a light or whatever it may be. And, yeah, David's already doing the, 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 the things. David knows. So they're from South Africa. Where people come to your, your, your car, your window, if you're stopped, with a gun, and they say, get out of your car, and they may even kill you and, and rob you, and they'll, they'll drive off with your car. Well, in South Africa, that was becoming so prevalent, so common that these, uh, these uh, very, in, 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 what's the word, ingenious fellows came up with this idea that they would uh, uh, install this system whereby if someone came to the car window with a gun or something like that, all you'd have to do was basically press a button and flames would come out the side of the car and would incinerate immediately those people who were trying to rob your car immediately incinerate them. The flames, I actually saw a, a video of it. They had a video of it. The flames shoot out so quickly. It's, it's almost like a, like a uh, what are those the torches? Like a, like a, like a torch, a flamethrower. It would, it would literally throw flames out in, like in that sort of angle. So it would make sure they got everyone <laughs> around your car. You wouldn't want to press that by accident if you were at home. But these two fellows have a similar sort of ability to that. They're able to project fire. Now, it says out of their mouth. Now, I don't know how, how that particularly works. I don't know all the, all the intricacies and, and how that may, uh, that, may, that may happen. But what we do know is Scripture says that, that when someone tries to hurt them, they have that ability to be able to devour the enemies, consume them with this fire. And some have looked at this passage and have said, that can't be real. I can't imagine how, how these guys are able to project fire to destroy their enemies. So therefore, this must be an image of something else. This must be some sort of a spiritual... We need to spiritualise this in a way that, that, that means that that fire might be something else. That might be they, they speak um, God's word and it, it bamboozles the, uh, the enemy so that they, they can't answer back. Well, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 10, because we need to understand who we're dealing with here. We're dealing with either Elijah and Moses or the people who have come in, the power of Elijah and Moses. And there's something very interesting about Elijah 
and the ministry that he had while he was on the earth the first time round. First, or Second Kings chapter 1, verse 10. Now, just to give you a, a brief introduction to this, this passage. King Ahaziah has fallen, has fallen down and has asked his priest to go and inquire of Baal, whether he would live or whether he wouldn't. Now, Baal was, Baal was an evil god. Before his, his uh, ambassadors got to, to, uh, to get to this place where they had to inquire of this thing, uh, Elijah manages to meet them on the way and says, why is he going to, to Baal for? Isn't there a God in Israel who, who can answer those things? Tell him he's going to die. Go back to him and tell him he's gone. So when they get back to him, they said, oh, this man, this, in fact, it says this hairy man, because Elijah was apparently a quite hairy person, um, came to us and stopped us from going over there. He said, don't go over there. I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen. The God of Israel has said, you are a goner. You're going to die. Uh, what do you want us to do, king? Who is he? We don't know who he is. And the king goes, that must be Elijah, that troublemaker. So what does King, king Isaiah do as a riot? He sends 50 men, a company of 50 men, to go and get him, to go and get uh, Elijah and bring him back. Obviously he had good intentions to, get, to get, send 50 men to go and grab him. So this is what happens when those 50 arrive to pick up uh, Elijah. Verse 10 says, And Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy 50. And guess what? And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, also he sent at him another captain of fifty with his fifty. And he answered and said unto him, O man of God, thus hath the king said, Come down quickly. And Elijah answered and said unto them, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Verse 13. And he sent again a captain of the third 50 with his 50. And the third captain, obviously having heard what had happened to the previous two of the 50, uh, went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and besought him. Please, he said unto him, O man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these 50 thy servants be precious in thy sight. And Elijah didn't kill them. The Spirit of God told Elijah, don't burn these ones up, just go with them. Elijah had... Anyone ever told you when you were younger, don't play with matches? I remember I was told not to play with matches. Well, Elijah's parents may have had a bit of a hard time getting that through to him because it seems as if during his ministry, he had this uncanny ability of, of, of using fire... Now most of us most of us are aware of the the battle that he had with the servants of Baal. Do you know, most of you remember that? There was a there was a uh, he was totally outnumbered by these by these false priests and prophets of Baal and he said to the people of Israel, "Well, let let's have a test. Let's have a test to see who's the right god. Is it Baal or is it Jehovah?" 
So they set up two, they set up two altars. They, they cut up the sacrifice on the altar. And he said, let's pray and see which God is able to sacrifice that or burn that, 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 uh, that the sacrifice up without having to light a match. And apparently the priests of Baal, they got together, they were screaming and calling on their gods and that wasn't, that wasn't working. So they started to whip themselves, cut themselves to, to, you know, to show their god that you know, they were, um, they were uh, serious about what they wanted, but no answer from Baal. And uh, meanwhile, Elijah there by himself, mind you, against, against all, these, all these... How many were there? Literally hundreds, weren't there? 450, was it? Him against 450. He's taunting them. He's saying, where is he? Has he gone on a holiday? Or maybe he's sleeping at the moment. He can't hear you. Scream louder. So these guys are screaming louder and louder. But at the end of it, nothing happened. Then Elijah said, well, give me a shot. So he calls on God. And they, what they did on top of that is they, they, they dumped all this water all over the whole thing and made a moat around it. There was so much water. They, they threw on this thing to make sure that it wasn't going to burn. But Elijah, in typical style, calls on God to, to light the sacrifice and a huge amount of fire comes down. Not only consumes the, the sacrifice, but burns up the altar, the water and everything else around it. And the rest is all history, as they say. This passage is a little bit less known. In fact, how did, how did Elijah go up to heaven? It was a chariot of fire as well, wasn't it? He had an affinity for fire. Or God, God used his ability, or the, God used fire with his ministry. Now, it's just in verse 6 of Revelation. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Now, another interesting, interesting uh, comparison we have here. So first of all, they have the ability to be able to, to consume their enemies with fire, which is the same ability that, that Elijah had. Okay? But now it says they have the power to shut heaven, to stop it from raining, and they also have the power to turn the waters to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues. That's an interesting one. The question is this. If they have the ability to smite the earth with all types of plagues, why do they only mention two? Why do they mention the ability to be able to stop the earth or stop the rain from falling and to turn the waters to blood? If they can do all types of plagues, of plagues, whenever they feel like it, why are these two in particular mentioned at the beginning? Well, once again, it's identifying these two characters, you see. It all comes down to identification. Let me ask you a question. Which was Moses' first plague that he sent on Egypt? It was when he turned the water to blood. That was his first, the first plague that he, that he sent on Egypt. He performed the other miracles where he threw down his rod and it turned into a snake, but the first plague that came upon Egypt was the water to blood and the fish, and the fish died. What was Elijah's first miracle? Elijah's first miracle was when he stopped 
the rain from falling for three and a half years. You see something, you see a bit of a comparison there? You see some sort of a... The first two plagues that Moses and Elijah sent upon the people in their earthly ministry when they were here the first time were those two miracles specifically. And then we know that Moses had other plagues that he sent. Scripture is identifying once again these two individuals, either as those two individuals or individuals who have their abilities and powers. Let's continue. Let's continue. Verse 7. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. Oh, bad news. Bad news for the two witnesses. After 1,260 days of preaching, of going around Jerusalem, preaching to everyone and witnessing against the devil, God allows him to kill them. Now, who is this beast? Because it mentions here that the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them. Do you remember the... um, you remember going back a little bit when the plague of locusts came upon the earth and it said that those locusts that ascended out of the bottomless pit, which were the demons that had been chained under the earth, were allowed to escape and torment men for five months. It says they had a king over them. Who was that king? It was Satan. Satan is a king who leads these armies out of the abyss to torment man. Satan is the king over the demons. So this beast is making specific reference to Satan. But Revelation, this is the only, not only, the only place where a beast is mentioned. And, and one of the reasons that, that John used this term beast is to give you an indication of how dangerous he is. The beast spoken of here is not an animal, but Satan himself. And Satan working specifically through one man. You see, there are three beasts mentioned in the book of Revelation. Not one, three. Apart from the one that's in heaven. And the the three beasts are this one, the beast, it simply calls him the beast. Then it says, the beast that ascendeth out of the sea, or that riseth out of the sea. And then there's the beast that rises from the earth. There are three beasts. Now, each of these beasts is a particular individual. But the first beast that rises out of the sea is what we call the Antichrist, the one who is the Roman leader who conquers the whole world. Then you have the false prophet who is the beast that rises out of the earth. And then you have Satan himself. You see, Satan, during this time, has set himself up a nice little trinity. And these three, Satan, the uh, Antichrist, and the false prophet, work together. They They are working together. They have the same heart because Satan has entered into their hearts and he's working through them. Satan tries to always imitate what God does. 
Have you noticed that? Where God has set up the Messiah, where God has promised from the, from the beginning, after man fell, to send a Messiah or a Saviour to save him, and that he would come through the line of a virgin. He would, come, he would be born of a virgin through a particular line. Satan always manages to try and copy that to deceive people and get them off track. The Bible says that there are many false Christs that have gone out, anti-Christs that have gone out. Anti doesn't mean necessarily against. Anti means better in place of. A replica of. So Satan always tries to duplicate what God does. And we know that God is a trinity because the Bible teaches us that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And these three are one in heaven. Although they have different functions, Satan sets himself up in the same way. And John wants us to understand how dangerous this man that he has entered, especially into his heart, how dangerous he is. And this is an interesting uh, few verses. If you go to Second Peter chapter two verse twelve, Peter describes certain men as brute beasts. And I want to, I want to give you uh, just a, 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 an indication of that. Second Peter chapter two verse twelve. Second Peter chapter 2. Now, now Peter is describing certain men who have forsaken the truth and be, have become utterly corrupted in themselves. Utterly corrupted. Look, what he, look, look how he describes them. But these, in verse 12, as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed speak evil of the things they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Look, get into verse 14 having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. That's not a nice description. It's not a nice description at all. But the beasts that the Satan manages to inspire to do his work on this earth are able to beguile unstable souls. They're able to convince the entire world to follow them, that they are the true Messiah, that one of them is the true Messiah sent by God, and the other one is the world's conqueror. They have allowed themselves to become fully possessed by Satan, to be inspired by him, and the Antichrist shall speak evil of God, shall lift himself up. He will covet the very throne that Christ is to sit on when he arrives in Jerusalem. Remember where we are. We're in Jerusalem. Where will Christ return and set up his kingdom? In Jerusalem. So where does Satan want to control? Jerusalem. The beast who is possessed by Satan has exactly the same intention. He is motivated by, he has the same passions as Satan. He wants to be the ruler of the world. Now, where does he get that passion from? How does he, how does he get that? Well, turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. Let's see where this, where this thing started. So we understand 
If we understand Satan's heart, we'll understand the heart of the beast. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. We'll read down to verse 15. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 to 15. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. Now who are we speaking about here? Satan. Satan's desire was to ascend to the throne of God to be God himself. Now the Bible says that Satan was cast out because he had sin in his heart. He looked upon his own beauty. He had pride within himself. He thought himself to be so great that he deserved to be sitting where the Lord Jesus is sitting. And he wanted that position. That's why he was able to convince a third of the angels in heaven to follow him in this rebellion. Now let's read the next two verses. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that, that opened not the house of his prisoners? Hang on a sec. Satan a man. Satan's not a man. Satan's an angel. But Satan can possess a man. And Satan does possess a man in the future. And the heart of these three individuals becomes one. And they seek to usurp the power and the authority that God has upon this world. See, where Satan wasn't able to to get the throne in heaven, the next best thing is to get it on the earth. God is not going to let him have that either. Let's go to Revelation chapter 11, verse 8. Let's continue. Three and a half years he has to put up with these two individuals. Three and a half years of being tormented, of, being, of having a thorn in his side... Three and a half years go by and God allows them, God allows Satan to kill them. And verse 8 says, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. 
lying somewhere in the streets of Jerusalem will be these two individuals, dead. While the world looks on, I can imagine the cameras, I can imagine the, the, the satellite images going around all around the world, and the whole world rejoices at that. They rejoice so much because they've put up with them for three and a half years and now they're finally dead. Public enemy number, enemies number one and two are both dead and the world rejoices. They, they're so happy, in fact, they let them sit there for three and a half days, their bodies, so everyone can make sure they've got a good, good angle on them and they can see their dead bodies and the world rejoices and they rejoice so much they send each other gifts. Interesting, isn't it? Like Christmas time. Just like Christmas. They will be so happy they send each other gifts. But unfortunately their joy is not going to last too long. The gift giving will cease after a few days. Because in verse 11 it says, And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them and they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what happened to them. God brings back to life. The world goes, oh! And then they ascend in a cloud into heaven. It's a beautiful picture of the resurrection, isn't it? The two prophets hear the voice of God calling them and in fact the other people hear that voice as well and they ascend into heaven in a cloud. Interesting. Who else ascended into heaven with a cloud? Jesus did, didn't he? Turn, turn back to, to Acts chapter 1 verse 18. last words of Jesus before he ascended into heaven he's on the Mount of Olives and he says but ye shall receive power he's speaking to his disciples ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth and when he had spoken these things while they beheld he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. We'll stop there. When Jesus was taken up into heaven, he rose physically with a body. They saw him rise up into the clouds, taken up into the clouds, and they, they stood there watching. Those who were watching him were his disciples and the believers. Now we have a situation where these two fellows are taken up in the same way. But they're witnessed by all their enemies. Now when Christ returns, how does he return? Same way. Christ will return in exactly the same way. Instead of um, going up in a cloud or coming back in some other way, the Bible says that he will descend the same way that he left. So they've got another uh, uh, visit to, uh, to behold 
These two are gone. They're scared out of their minds, but there's going to be coming another one who is much greater than those two, who is going to be coming to make war with the earth. And they won't have to put up with him for three and a half years because he will consume his enemies. They won't have a chance. After being tormented, the Bible says, the whole world, that the whole world was tormented by these two individuals. How were they tormented? They were tormented because of what they were saying. They were tormented because of what they were hearing. They were tormented because they couldn't get rid of these two. These two were a thorn in their side from their plans to create a one-world government headed by the Antichrist. And these two witnesses were given special powers to be able to carry out their job, correct? They had to, otherwise they would have been killed a lot a long time before three and a half years. But God's power and God's grace saw them through to the end until God decided when it was time for them to go. Now in Second Peter chapter, 3, chapter 1 verse 3 it says, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Sometimes we feel as if we don't have the things that we need to get us through to the end. Do you feel like that sometimes? Do you feel as if sometimes you're being defeated by Satan? But scripture tells us that we have everything we need to live godly lives in this world. Even though we are incredibly outnumbered. Even though Satan's forces are very strong. And Satan has earmarked us to try to defeat us. The Bible says we have everything we need to live the sort of lives that God would have us to live. And we need to believe that. Sometimes we struggle with believing the things that God simply says. Let me ask you a question. Who's put their faith in Christ here? Who believes that God sent his only begotten son into this world who was crucified and has risen again on the third day and that his blood has now washed your sins away? Do you believe that? Okay. Why do we struggle so much with the next thing? Why do we struggle so much as Christians in this world with believing that God has given us everything we need to live godly lives? Because I find that in Christians a lot. Oh yeah, I believe God saved me. I believe God sent Jesus to, you know, to the world, that he lived the perfect life, that he was born of a virgin, that he died on the cross, that he rose on the third day, and I put my faith in him to save me. But I find it a bit hard to believe that, God, that I can live a, a victorious Christian life. Really? Which is harder to believe, let me ask you. What's harder to believe? That, that God sent his only son from heaven or to believe that God can sustain what he's already started? What's harder for God to do? To make you a Christian? To turn you from sin? To change your heart from an unbeliever, from a sinner, to someone who has put their faith in Christ? Or just to maintain what 
God's already started in you. Which is harder for God to do? I think it's, hard, it's, it's a much harder thing for God to change you from a sinner to a saint, isn't it? To convert you completely. Yet we believe that all too easily, but we find it very hard to believe that I can live the sort of life that God wants me to live. Why? It's because Satan has convinced us. It's because Satan wants us to live defeated lives, even though we do have everything we need. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Now listen carefully to his words and I want you to I want you to think about as we're reading through each of these things are we doing them? Finally my brethren be strong in the Lord and in the power of your might. No, his might. Be confident in God's power. Okay? Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rules of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all, or is that some, of the fiery darts of the wicked. It's all. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Now let me ask you a question. Satan, when these two individuals were on the earth, were they in the majority or the minority? Well, you can look at it two ways, can't you? They're in the majority with numbers-wise, but they were, uh, they were in the minority numbers-wise because they were outnumbered by the individuals, but they were the majority because it was them and God. And you and God are a majority, whichever way you look at it. If you're the last person on this earth that believes in God, you and God are a majority. And there is no, there's no other group or individuals that can actually overcome you. This is the same thing that Elijah experienced. Do you remember? He was against all. Everyone was against him. He went there by himself. He had faith in God and he overcame the evil. These two individuals are there by themselves against an enormous army. And Satan declares war, has declared, or will declare war on them as he declares war on you and I. Now, if Satan has declared war on us, let me ask you a question. Are you at war now? Because if someone has declared war on you, what's your response? 
Can you afford to be taking it easy? The answer is no. There is no option for us. The devil has declared war on us. We are in a war. And to... Brother Owen made an interesting uh, remark this morning. We're talking about football, and we shouldn't be talking about football in this place. But he said that the one who... Let me see if I can, I can quote him properly. Actually, I'll get you to stand up and, <laughs> and say... What was the quote? So the person who gets to take his uniform or armour off at the end of the battle is the one who gets to boast. Because if you can't take your armour off at the end of the battle, you know where you are. Now we have nothing to boast of within ourselves, but God has given us all these things for us to be able to fight this battle. And it is a battle. And if you've come if you've become a Christian and you've and you've put your faith in Christ thinking that that life is now going to be sweet and everything is going to turn out fine and everything is going to work out the way you've, you've, you've expected, well, you've got another thing coming. And you already have. Because Satan is against you and I. And he has many armaments and things that he can use against us. But Scripture says that if we put on God's armour, if we hold to these things, things such as the truth, God's word, things such as prayer. And it says to shut our feet with the gospel of truth, which means to go around carrying that gospel around with you wherever you go. If you put on the helmet of salvation, which means you understand that you are saved all the time, then you can withstand his attacks. And more importantly, it says always take up the shield of faith. Because it's faith. We are saved by grace through faith, correct? Grace is something that we never deserved from God, that God gave us. I like the, uh, the, the what's it called there, the acronym or the... Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Nice way to remember it. God's riches at Christ's expense. I didn't pay for it. Christ paid for them. And I, got, I received God's riches because of his love. Faith is the vehicle through which that, that grace actually works. So believing in God's grace, believing that God loves me, believing that his power is greater than any power in, in this world gives me the ability to be able to stand on my feet, gives me the ability to be able to withstand if Satan tries to attack. And he does, and he will. So the question is today, are you fully girded about with God's armour? Are you doing the things that God wants you to do? Because if you are, you will. The Bible promises. See it through right to the end as these two witnesses did. Isaiah chapter 54 verse 17 says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn God. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. First lesson from today, you have everything you need to fulfill the ministry God has set you to do. These guys are two witnesses. Well, guess what we are? We're witnesses too. We are called to be Christ's disciples, which means everywhere he's leading us in this world, we're meant to be going. 
So God has given you everything you need for that journey, for that walk, for that race, for that battle. He's given you everything you need. You just need to do it. To believe it first and then simply do it. You can't cry that you're struggling with sin and you're struggling with all these other things that are going on in your life, that things aren't working out, if you're not doing the basics. I find it frustrating when I hear people say, oh, you know, I'm struggling with that and they've struggled with it for years and years, but they don't read their Bible daily. They don't go to church regularly. They don't fellowship with other Christians. That's exactly what Satan wants you to do. To stop doing the basics so you will fall in a deeper hole. But the Bible says that no, no weapon that is fashioned against us or formed against us shall prosper. The second thing I want you to remember and take home with you today is, as I, as I mentioned during communion, you are not alone. Sometimes we feel that the things we're going through are the only ones who go through them. Correct? No one else can understand what I'm going through. I'm the only one who's in this situation. I'm the only one who struggles this much. If people only knew what I'm going through, they would pity me and they would understand why I do the things that I do, why I say the things that I say, how, why I react with these emotions this way. Correct? How many times do we give ourselves the same excuse? How many times do we excuse our laziness our lack of faith but I want to remind you this morning that you are not alone those two witnesses okay, were alone but guess what they had each other didn't they they had each other for company for three and a half years and it would have been a hard job for three and a half years to go out preaching day after day after day and being rejected day after day after day for three and a half years think of it if you were by yourself, you'd struggle. I would struggle. Even if I had the ability to be able to breathe fire on all my enemies. They had each other. And one lesson I want you to understand is that we have each other. God has given us, God has not put us alone here. God has made us to be able to depend on each other for support. And we need to be there as a support for each other as well. So God has given us each other. But God has also given us his son. And Jesus promised us that he would be with us to the end of the world until the day he returns. So there is not a place you can be. There is not an emotion you can feel. There is not a difficulty you can go through that Jesus isn't there already with you. You are not alone Neither are you alone when it comes to other people. God is with you every step of the way. Remember that. Remember that even though we struggle, even though we are attacked by Satan, that we are not alone and we have been given everything we need to win this battle. Win it. For the Bible says we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. He didn't say we're more than losers. Win it. And win it every day because God has promised you can do it. God bless.